I would now like to welcome uh, Pat Flanagan to discuss not only uh, the threat to the tortoise and the importance, but actually the importance of the whole ecosystem in the desert. Pat Flanagan is a naturalist educator. She's based in 29 Palms, California. She developed the first place-based desert ecology geology curriculum in Southern California, the Salton Basin Living Laboratory Field Trip Program, as well as the Ecosystem Map Graphic Organizer. She is currently a desert naturalist at the 29 Palms Inn uh, on the Oasis of Mata. She educates an international audience on the local history going back 9,000 years and desert ecology. Pat, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, Pat, um, there are a number of things I'd like to discuss with you, but uh, right now you heard the clip on the Desert Tortoise, the Desert Tortoise Council and the Desert Tortoise Preserve Committee. They've petitioned California Fish and Game Commission to elevate tortoise dash status from threatened to endangered. And the LA Times had an article uh, recently that just broke my heart. The headline was, can, um, can California's Endangered Species Act save the Mojave Desert Tortoise? And people are worried that they're going extinct. Uh, Pat Flanagan, your thoughts? Well, um, I know that where I live, that uh, I have for the first time in years, seen a desert tortoise recently that's come to visit me. It's now underground for the winter time, but it came in and um, was eating my cactus. So I hope that gave it both calories and water. Um, but one of the biggest problems also that we have is I live on private land. If I was going to do any kind of building, then I would not have to get the same kind of permits that you have to have if you're going to be doing any kind of a work on Bureau of Land Management land, for instance, but the uh, Department of the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife Service is now developing a general conservation plan for desert tortoise in California, and uh, it will include private land and um, the area that I live in in the Morongo Basin and around Joshua Tree National Park. The area that is north of the park is included in this. Plan, conservation plan. So that'll be excellent when it is uh, finalized. Right. And, uh, and Pat, I mean, the idea that the desert tortoise was around even before this place was a desert, millions of millions of years old and now uh, considered uh, threatened is just a heartbreak. But uh, Pat, there's also the whole of the ecological balance uh, in the desert. Tell us a bit about what you know about, um, about that. I mean, the importance of the California uh, desert, not only for carbon sequestration, but also generally just for biodiversity. Pat Flanagan. So, so okay, biodiversity. Um, in the many hundreds of people that I've talked to from all over the world, I usually start out asking, well, how many People think the desert is a place with nothing going on except sand dunes. And frequently the answer is I get a raised hand saying them. However, since the deserts of California make up 27% of the state, they actually have 38% of the native plants within the state. And the state is a biodiversity hotspot in the world. So I think you go, what? 
how can that be? You know, and getting that around your head, the, the three deserts that you talked about, the Sonoran, Colorado to the south of us, the Mojave, the Great Basin Desert, uh, they all have a different ecology, as a matter of fact. The Sonoran takes, uh, gets two rainy seasons a year. The Mojave one, the Great Basin, relies more on snow. So they're climatologically, topographically, and geologically very diverse, which is what helps us to be a place where evolution can take place. So um, we have 2,450 plus native plants. How does that, how does that fit in your mind, Margaret? <laughs> really? Absolutely. And, you know, Pat, the, the thing is, I mean, people are listening to this show in Southern California, but other uh, parts of, of the country may be wondering, well, why the heck should we care about protecting the desert? I mean, what's, what's so important uh, about about this, you talked about 2,450 native plants. I mentioned the creosote, um, which is considered one of the oldest organisms. I, I read that somewhere. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I only saw it in, in one place, but I do know there is one uh, creosote bush um, in the desert, California desert, that's said to be some 10,000 years old, something like that. But why? What what is the importance? I mean, given the climate crisis that we are in right now, and a lot of focus on defending. Uh, last week, this week, actually, we did uh, some shows on uh, forest defenders and protecting the forest, not only here in the United States, stopping genetically engineered trees and and much more, right? And people also focus on the importance of stopping fossil fuels, but people generally don't think about protecting the desert as uh, an environmental necessity, um, given the whole ecological uh, balance. Uh, Pat Flanagan, any thoughts on that? Well, um, yes, because although we don't see any big trees sequestering carbon above ground, were you to go look underground, you would see that the plants, all those creosote that you think about those creosote are connected underground by mycorrhizal fungi. And as the creosote and other species of plant are photosynthesizing, they're bringing carbon dioxide underground and releasing it and, and storing it underground. But over long periods of time, that storage goes deeper and deeper and it becomes a rock called caliche. And that uh, the deeper caliche that we have, that's Pleistocene, Ice Age carbon. So 10% of the carbon in California that is so important is stored in the desert. And it can stay that way if you don't disturb the desert, if you don't put in the utility scale solar, because you're going to have to be sinking pilings, for instance, which will break up. You have First of all, you're going to scrape the plants away. But then also the pilings are going to break up the caliche. You're going to releasing carbon. You do not find the amount of carbon released being studied, which is unfortunate. So, yes, the desert has the most, the largest undisturbed ecosystem in the world. And if what? you just leave it alone. Yeah. You didn't know that, did you? Did you know? No. No. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's Could the you largest. Repeat that, Pat? The Okay, the California desert is the largest intact ecosystem in the continental United States. And then, excuse me, not the world, but then it gets to the 
gets to be a major factor in the world as well. So in the United States, the desert is it. And if you leave it alone, you can um, do very well. One of the interesting things is there was a study done by the National Park Service that was looking at parks throughout the United States to see how they sequestered carbon. Number one was Great Smoky Mountain. Is that a surprise? No. But what was a surprise is that Death Valley and Joshua Tree National Park and the Mojave Preserve are within the top 10 parks with the highest annual net ecosystem carbon balance. Huh? But it's because we have so much land that is just left as it is. It is not being disturbed within the protected areas. And now we need to be protecting also private lands as well. Right. And, you know, Pat, that just makes me think of uh, not only what I've learned about the tribes, the nations who have uh, lived in this desert and with this desert, including in, in the area now known as, quote unquote, Death Valley, you know, think of the images that that raises. But also um, when I traveled in, in Australia in Aboriginal territory and the importance that is placed on the land and just leaving the land alone, right? And not disturbing the land and the value uh, of that. You know, what you're saying about the, the desert and it's true, I didn't know, the largest intact ecosystem in the United States. And, and Pat, there's something else, another reason why so many people uh, love the desert, love to uh, visit the desert, and that has to do with dark skies. I was reading somewhere that light pollution has now shown in both urban and rural areas to be detrimental uh, to the health of people, and it also disturbs the critters that live in, in that environment who are very, very uh, dependent, their habits and their culture, so to speak, uh, very dependent on uh, dark skies. Uh, Pat Flanagan, your thoughts? Well, um, yes, if many, because of the weather, for one thing, many of the desert animals are out there hunting at night. And if they cannot move across the desert hunting for food, or, or hunting, the hunting for food can be those that are vegetarians and those that are carnivores. Um, they need to have the dark sky because that's the way their eyes are adjusted. If you have a lot of light, you also let the carnivores see the animals as what well, more easily. So they're they're predated on higher. It's um it's complex. Just think about all of a sudden if we depend upon the dark sky for getting some sleep, what if we didn't have it anymore? We'll sort of flip that around. And if we depend upon the dark sky for moving around and getting our stuff, um, then the light is not good for us. Right. And, and Pat, I remember, the, in fact, the, my first visit actually to the California desert, I wanted my daughter, who was a, a young thing at the time, uh, to be able to see the night sky. I had taken her to the planetarium and um, I think in Wilson, uh, you know, in, in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And she was utterly blown away looking at the stars. And I thought, oh, my God, this kid grew up in East L.A. in an urban environment. I grew up in Barbados in a small village. So I had an idea of what a night sky looked like and brought her out here um, to so she would get a look at, at the night sky. And I'm glad to say she's now um, uh 
a scientist, she's a physicist. And one of the things, the point she makes is that every child should have an opportunity to see the night sky, that it should be our right, <laughs> which I totally um, agree with, uh, Pat. Um, right. Yeah, but setting, you know, the, so we have the protecting the, the desert tortoise, uh, protecting the dark skies. Now, there is a bit of a conflict going on with people who want a green ecology ecology. They need things like lithium batteries. There are these huge uh, solar farms that are propping up in the desert. There are already, I think, 24 solar energy facilities in the Mojave Desert alone, and more than 15 have been approved to be developed. What's the problem? What's the clash going on here, Pat? Well, years years ago, the um United States Environmental Protection Agency developed lists of disturbed areas on which utility scale solar could be built. Those areas are not being uh, looked at so carefully. Instead, um, developers want to use flatland that is more easily accessible and that may not have to pay taxes on, they may not have to pay BLM for it. And then they have to do a long transmission line to get the which also goes across uh, the San Andreas Fault and the fire zone to get to LA and other areas where the energy is gonna be used. Um, there's a development, there's a Daggett Solar up in Newberry Springs, which is on 3000 acres. And half of that was put on our uh, agricultural land that was no longer being used because there wasn't enough water. Good. The other half, is on pristine desert land. And we actually know how to date the age of the creosote clones. And that's how you tell the, the, the creosotes begin to grow outward from their initial mother plant. And that you can date uh, the age of the creosote by knowing the, the radius. However, um, so I was looking at that project and dating the creosote clones using Google Earth. And there were some that were 4,000 years old. How much carbon is being sequestered under there? It is going to be released. Never mind the fact that these flatlands are also on what's called sand transport paths. So when you take the vegetation off, the wind is blowing in the spring and other times of the year, and the dust is horrible. And for people with lung problems, it's a disaster. Right. And, and Pat, I'm, I'm looking at, at the clock. There never seems to be enough time, Pat uh, Flanagan, to speak with you. One of the things that we may have to tackle when you come back, and I hope you will, is the Salton Sea is now said to have the largest lithium deposits in the world. And we know that lithium is very much in demand for electric cars. Of course, the Salton Sea out here in the uh, California desert. So in addition to the, the solar farms uh, that must be disturbing um, life in the desert, now we will have possible large-scale mining operations happening uh, for lithium. But um, Pat Flanagan, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. But Pat, you're active with a group in California, the, in Morongo Basin, um, having to do with protecting the environment. Um, what is the name of that, that group? And is there a website if people can Google and, and get involved and, and support those efforts? It's the, 
Yes, it's the Morongo Basin Conservation Association. It is 53 years running. And the uh, website is mbconservation.org or just Google Morongo Basin Conservation Organization and you will find out a whole bunch. Right. And well, you'll Pat, be able to help. Well, thank you so much for your work, uh, Pat Flanagan. And we hope to speak with you again. Thank you for joining us. And thank you. <laughs>